my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today... You may be wondering, how have we got a hundred and so episodes in and never done Paul Schrader before? Is there a reason for this? I have to say that Paul Schrader has to be one of those guys that... I don't know if he has any, like, massive fans uh-huh. in the sense that, like, when people talk about him, they usually talk about him always in conjunction with someone like Martin Scorsese because he wrote uh, Taxi Driver, wrote a draft of Raging Bull, did a draft of The Last Temptation of Christ, and then they often go, and he also directed other films. Right, and there's, it's hard to pinpoint, like, one masterpiece in the Schrader. Mishima. Mishima. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, even that one, uh, not that popular. Yeah, it's not in the public consciousness in the way that the films that Martin Scorsese directed. And Schrader also, you know, because his sensibility is in many ways so aligned with Scorsese's, but unlike Scorsese, his batting average isn't that great. But he is a director that's worked consistently throughout his career. Um, When you consider him, you imagine that he made a film like every five years or something like that but look at his imdb and it's every two years every three years he just kept working but you know in another way this is another barrier to appreciating paul schrader mm-hmm. because you know he tackles so many different genres and uh there are so many compromises in his career so many movies that were troubled in some way or movies that he made because that was the movie he was able to make at the time it's not like you know scorsese where he's had like exactly the career that he wants and paul schrader is a guy as well that the kind of movie he makes if he doesn't hit the nail on the head like they're not gonna work Mm. um we're gonna talk probably a lot about scorsese versus paul schrader but the way to start is to say that while they both have upbringings that are very similar very religious and that kind of guilt through the religion (laughs) is illustrated through their films scorsese is like a city guy and that's where his religion comes from and paul schrader is a guy who grew up in grand Rapids, michigan's as a calvinist i also think there might be a difference between like their Calvinist upbringing and their Catholic upbringing, mm-hmm. the aesthetic of Catholicism is very Baroque, mm-hmm. whereas Calvinism, it's all about, you know, having your little monk-like existence in your in your empty room and hitting yourself with a whip or whatever, whatever they do. So Calvinism always comes up, uh, no matter what movie it is, that Paul Schrader is on the circuit promoting. He'll even admit himself that it is something that informs all of his work. The fact that He was always guilty intellectually. Just the thoughts that he would have as a kid uh, made him feel like he was going to be, like, banished to hell. There's a story that goes around that his mother, when he was a kid, pricked his finger with a needle and said, you know that feeling? It feels like that all the time when you're in hell. And that's something that he could never get away from. And this is something that I think is maybe interesting, if not always good, about his filmography. He's someone who, you know, I'm sure he's had plenty of sex in his life, but he also has, like, a deep ingrained (laughs) fear of sex. What was that post that he uh, put on Facebook where it was like, ah, the 70s when we used to have sex all the time or something like that. And the first comment was his daughter going, ew, gross dad. Yeah, he's somebody who his filmography is so full of simultaneously being attracted and repulsed by decadence, Mm -hmm. whether it's autofocus or hardcore or I don't know, a half dozen other movies, the canyons. And the fact that he did go from his small town life to L.A. is a kind of fight that is always present in all of his films. Mm -hmm. If you look at something like Blue Collar, which was his first directorial effort, that is a film about like working class people having to deal with complex moral problems. And then you look at a film like American Gigolo, and that's all about excess Mm -hmm. and what it does to a person. You know, I think there's one more perhaps barrier to entry in Paul Schrader, but 
maybe also something that's sort of interesting about him. He is, you know, one of the few filmmakers working these days who I think is genuinely an intellectual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we both reread Schrader on Schrader this week. Great book. Great book, where he's very lucid and articulate about all of his films. That said, he's also somebody who is very frank about you know, working in genres, mm-hmm. oftentimes working in very trashy genres uh, and talking about how he wants to get his ideas across in, you know, uh, whatever style of film he's able to get funding for. So I think, you know, like somebody like Adam Agoyan, there's often a tension between him and the rather trashy material he's doing. The Canyons is a perfect example. And I think the lucidity in that kind of dialogue he's able to have about his own work comes from the fact that he was a film critic for a long time as he was coming up into the world of filmmaking. He was famously a um, Paulette, one of the disciples of Pauline Kael back in in the time where he was, I think, going to the AFI Institute where he was working. Which is interesting to me because I would think they would have very different sensibilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, Schrader loves you know, as he calls it, transcendental style, that slow style of Carl Dreyer and Ozu Ozu and... uh, And Bresson. Bresson. Yeah. And he actually wrote the book on it, The Transcendental Style. And it's interesting that he would be obsessed with that because it's not really the kind of style that he would go into the films that he made. No, and it's not really the kind of style that Pauline Kael gravitates towards either. She's very poppy in Mm -hmm. her taste. And the way that Paul Schrader made a career is the kind of journey that you always wish you would have, which is like, he wrote a script that he sold on spec uh, called The Yakuza that he wrote with his uh, brother, Leonard Schrader. Who uh, co-directed The Killing of America. (laughs) And it sold to the big studio. Uh, Sidney Pollack made it. And while I actually rewatched the film for this podcast and really enjoyed it, you can understand why why Paul Schrader does not. Where, like, the Yakuza is very respectful to the idea of the Japanese society. It's filmed like those movies. When people talk, it's subtitled. But... Sidney Pollack brought in Robert Town to rewrite Schrader's draft to add a love story. There are a number of his screenplays that got turned into movies by other people that Schrader doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Maybe a very obvious example would be uh, Rolling Thunder. You know, it's a very difficult line that Schrader walks on a lot of his writing because he writes about these, you know, terrible antisocial um, fascist vigilante types. And he strongly identifies with them while also disapproving of them. And that's a very difficult mixture. And in Rolling Thunder, he said that his first draft, the main character was like an asshole and like a racist. And the journey you take with him is one that's built in rage, not kind of vengeance that satisfies an audience. And for all their differences, Scorsese and Schrader uh, really connect on this level of Mm -hmm. being able to Uh, put you in the headspace of a very difficult antisocial character and identifying with them and, you know, kind of sharing how they identify with these characters while also um, making it clear that you're not supposed to like them. But even in Taxi Driver, the original draft painted Travis Bickle in a light that was much more negative. Mm. Uh, Schrader talks about in Schrader on Schrader that he always wanted Travis Bickle to be punching downwards, Mm -hmm. that he could never punch up, so he just kind of took it uh, out on people that he was actually had more control over. Like at the end of the film, he wanted Travis Bickle to only kill black people, Mm -hmm. to be representative that this character was racist. And he used his rage and kind of anger in negative ways, not the heroic light that, uh, you know, people giving a surface reading to Taxi Driver could take out of it. Uh, Harvey Keitel, his character was supposed to be black, Mm -hmm. right? What about the Palantine character, the politician? Was he in the original draft? He was. And the idea was that Robert De Niro 
when he can't kill the politician who is the father figure of the Sybil Shepherd character, mm-hmm. he goes to the next father figure he can find, which is Harvey Keitel, mm-hmm. who's the father figure of the Jodie Foster character. Mm-hmm. This is all stuff that I'm just stealing from Schrader on Schrader, so, which is an indication you should go read the book if this podcast episode interests you. Taxi Driver, by the way, good movie. Yeah, great movie. Yeah. We're not going to talk about it too much, yeah. so let's move on to the stuff that we watch that Schrader actually directed. Well, why don't we talk about maybe his first two f- films mm-hmm. a little bit, which I don't think either of us revisited for the podcast. No, but I've actually watched them quite a number of yeah, times. Me too. So Blue Collar with uh, Harvey Keitel, Yafet Koto, and the great Richard Pryor as three, uh, you know, workaday slugs at an auto factory in Detroit who uh, get entangled in a conspiracy where the union is in cahoots with, you know, the, the bosses to keep the workers down. Mm-hmm. And I would say that for a first film, it's inching on being a classic. Like, mm-hmm. for what it is, it works so perfectly. And it's a film that's impossible to discuss without the drama that happened on set because Yafet Koto, Richard Pryor, and Harvey Keitel hated each other mm-hmm. to the point that, like, when the final shot happened, Richard Pryor just walked away, got in his car, and drove off, <laughs> and they never talked to him again. They were all worried they were upstaging each other. Uh, I think famously Richard Pryor uh, said that Schrader got him back on coke uh, <laughs> out, of, out of pressure. I mean, <laughs> although apparently, though, Schrader claims that many years later, Richard Pryor's people got in touch with him to adapt his autobiography into a film. Wow. And Schrader's kind of angle on the characters, which this script he did write with his brother, Leonard Schrader, is interesting because, like, these are all likable people doing unlikable things and that your allegiances kind of shift as the movie progresses. Mm -hmm. And you're also sometimes not quite sure where you stand because you go into the movie assuming the union is on the side Mm -hmm. of good. And Schrader's perspective in the movie is basically, as many people have said, a Marxist perspective mm-hmm. uh, where it's where it's all about the the owners of the means of production have to keep the, the control in yeah. place <laughs> and, and we'll use you know whatever means like they'll pit them against each other oftentimes on racial grounds mm-hmm. and this is a movie that i think it was well received and it did well financially and allowed trader who when he looks back on it he says that he's proud of the movie even though that the way that he made it actually caused him to break down into tears at one point and Richard Pryor was like come on man up like aren't you a director <laughs> uh, hardcore though the next one. Oh man he does not like that movie and it, it is much dodgier I think than uh, Blue Collar and I think it's mostly interesting um, as sort of a kitsch item ah I love it but and, I understand that mm-hmm. Trader looks at it and goes what was I thinking and it's also interesting just as a glimpse into Schrader's uh, twisted mind mm-hmm. uh, I, in an interview I read the interviewer goes wait so the movie takes the position of George C. Scott who uh, demonizes prostitution and all these awful things and Paul Schrader goes yeah it does like that's the perspective that the movie takes because I wanted to make a movie that starred my father <laughs> yeah so George C. Scott plays a, a very strict is he a Calvinist in this he film? is yes a very strict Calvinist in the Midwest whose daughter disappears one day and then several weeks later a private investigator played by the great Peter Boyle uh, <laughs> finds that uh, his daughter is uh, working in the porn industry and there's of course that very famous scene where George C. Scott watches turn it off 
<laughs> Turn it off! So good. So Georgie Scott uh, went up to Paul Schrader during a scene. He says, I won't do this unless you promise you'll never direct again. <laughs> and Paul Schrader got on his knees and said, I promise you, I promise you. And then two weeks later, George C. Scott reads in Variety that Schrader's just signed on to make American Gigolo. And he says, you lied to me. And Paul Schrader goes, yep, I did. I had to get the shot. <laughs> uh, so George C. Scott goes over to San Francisco to the beating heart of the porn and sex industry to uh, wander into a lot of porn shops and freak out and then get chased out. And then, of course, there's a great scene where uh, he he puts on a fake mustache and starts auditioning porn stars <laughs> to try to like to tr- you know to try to find w- the one who is in the film. It's kind of like uh, cruising except straight. And I love the way that Paul Schrader shoots the movie. He's complained a lot that he felt that his visual style wasn't developed enough in hardcore and the way that he tried to kind of smooth it over was to use Dario Argento gel lighting over <laughs> all the scenes which creates this weird expressionist nightmare that you're not sure how you're supposed to take these scenes where like Georgie Scott is throwing a pornographer through a bunch of walls and windows. But the movie's interesting because Schrader loves porn and Mm -hmm. he loves sex and he also hates it. So I mean if you look at the next movie he made after it, American Gigolo, which you could see it on one hand that Richard Gere who plays this gigolo who can't feel love and is kind of just stumbling through life is an indictment of this kind of behavior. But Paul Schrader himself said, oh well this was a position I was in while I was in LA like it was important for me to look nice it was important for me to have all these social norms mm-hmm. and then when you look at the movie you're like wait I don't know how I'm supposed to feel in this scenario Paul Schrader was good friends with Don Simpson uh, who is Jerry Bruckheimer's Jerry Bruckheimer Florida. produced a bunch of Paul Schrader films yeah and Don Simpson was like the biggest hedonist in the world <laughs> yeah, he mean, was the worst. an absolute mess <laughs> I mean we talked a lot about Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese and it should be pointed out that Schrader hung out with all the guys like John Milius Steve Spielberg like he was there as part of that film brat pack that was coming up in the 70s two of those film brats produced his 1985 film Mishima A Life in Four Parts which I think is probably like the consensus choice for his best movie Mm -hmm. is that fair to say yeah I would absolutely say that that's the one and I had actually never seen it until I watched it this week and oh man did I like this movie so this is a biopic of the Japanese writer Yukio Mishima who uh, was notable not only for his vast body of work as a poet and author, but for the fact that on the last day of his life, he and several of his disciples stormed the government and uh, held the prime minister hostage to try to get rid of such corrupting Western influences as democracy Mm -hmm. and reinstate the emperor as the supreme ruler. And Paul Schrader was attracted to the story because it's a reflection of the people that he continually makes movies about, which is the self-destructive person. Mm -hmm. And like Mishima he felt was perfect in this regard because there was also like the Japanese element to it. For a long time, he said he was going to make a biopic on Hank Williams. And then he found that Mishima actually gave him a different perspective and way to kind of adapt to life. Because if you've heard of Mishima, it's probably in the context of one perfect shots that show up on Twitter (laughs) because the film is a stylistic stew of Mishima's life, which is shot in black and white and kind of echoes of Ozu, 
and then you have the modern day section, which is supposedly like Costa Gravis is what Schrader said inspired him, but it also looks like Kinji Fukasaku in that kind of handheld, like gangster style. Yeah, and, and a lot of scenes shot on like very stylized sets, like a, mm. almost like Sage and Suzuki. Exactly, like and that. that's what the one perfect shot thing comes from. And I mean, as many similarities as there are between this movie and his other movies, like feels a bit unlike him because, you know, First Reformed is coming out and people are saying, well, this is the first sort of film that he's made in that Brisson style. But frankly, watching his movies this week, I see a lot of Brisson in them. Mm -hmm. He often shoots in a rather cold, detached style with a lot of medium shots. It, it They're not like pulse-pounding objects like mm. Martin Scorsese's films are. However, Mishima is extremely stylized and extremely experimental. And that it's propelled by that Philip Glass score, which mm. people listening to this, if you're like, oh, I've never heard of that, you have. Because it's in every trailer ever. Because it's this building sound that it just repeats over and over again in variations through Mishima in a way that fits the material perfectly. Mm. So it's a much more Rococo movie mm. than a lot of Schrader's other movies. I was very moved by the way this movie tackles the idea of a man expressing himself through his art. Mm -hmm. We see three of Mishima's uh, stories enacted, and it's an unconventional biopic in the way that these stories are basically supposed to express something about his life that we're not seeing on screen. Which is the perfect way to approach this kind of biopic. Schrader talks a lot about that the biopic is a toxic kind of genre because you have to invent stuff to make it dramatically compelling. Mm -hmm. And in the stylizations through Mishima, he finds the perfect way to kind of inform the character without actually having people say like, oh, wow, that reminds me of this idea. And then he goes, hmm, maybe I'll write that in a novel. Mm -hmm. It's that through these kind of plays and this expressionist uh, illustration of them that you get an idea of who Mishima is. You know, the middle section, which is based on one of his novels that was never translated into English about a sadomasochistic love affair between an older woman and a younger man. Apparently, Mishima did write a book that was more about homosexuality because mm. he was bisexual, probably a little more homosexual, Which frankly. the movie kind of hints at at one point mm. where he's dancing with a man, but it never makes a text. But apparently his widow, you know, never let Schrader have the rights to this book that was actually about homosexuality. So instead, Schrader did it more more obliquely by getting the rights to this more obscure book about sadomasochism, which is also a big part of Mishima's sexuality. And this is a movie we should point out that was made in a kind of environment that it should never exist. If you read the history of it, we won't go into detail, like it was a bunch of warring parties that ended up with someone giving money to Schrader and going, all right, you'll make this movie, but we don't really care how it's released. You know, when you read Schrader on Schrader, it's quite an exhausting book because, you know, so many of these movies... Movies. I mean, he got all these movies made, but so many of the movies were compromised in some way, or mm -hmm. they took seven or eight years to make, or in the case of a movie like Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist, <laughs> it almost wasn't released. Yeah. Uh, it was totally reshot by Rennie Harlan. <laughs> you know, I would say the uh, mirror image of Paul Schrader. <laughs> yeah. Or then, you know, after the book, uh, Dying of the Light was taken away from him. Had its own problems. Do you think that's an issue that, like, people just don't respect Schrader? Like, because no one would do this to someone like Martin Scorsese or something like that. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, uh, Schrader is somebody who has a very cold, detached mm -hmm. uh, style. And he's, you know, a, a very sort of cold, intellectual person. And yet he's working in these trashy genres. Mm -hmm. And so I think... 
either he's he's trying to make a movie that is more reflective of his sensibilities like affliction which is not going to be a good commercial bet or he's making a movie where he has to sneak in his ideas like uh, uh dying of the light and that's maybe not giving the money men what they want. And I think that Schrader, while he is a guy that says stuff like, oh, I want to make studio pictures. That's what I want to do. Like the horror films that he's made, he kind of looks down on them. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't want to get into the um, the meat, like the cheap seat stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he does want to make them kind of intellectually superior to stuff like, ah, the low budget monster movies. Like his Cat People adaptation that came out in 1982. Um, he was asked like, oh, were you a fan of the original cat people he's like nah nah i just think it's like a minor film i don't understand why it has the reputation that it does which is only the position of like an academic film person and yet maybe this isn't true maybe i'm just uh, projecting this onto his films but i think that schrader's genre films as hit and miss as they are are more interesting than adam agoyan's genre films. <laughs> well, absolutely because Schrader has that push-pull within him. Mm-hmm. He is repulsed and attracted to these trashy elements, well, I whereas think... Egoyan is only repulsed by them. Yeah, and I was, yeah, Egoyan doesn't like the stuff that he's making, yeah. while Paul Schrader is like, ah, I don't know how to feel about this. So, yeah. like, cat people will have this, like, in-your-face sexuality and violence, mm-hmm. but it's structured in a way that doesn't deliver exactly what an audience would want. Mm-hmm. So, throughout uh, Schrader's career, it does look like he's kind of making the same movie over and over again again like you talk about like his god's lonely man films which is stuff like taxi driver american gigolo light sleeper which we both watched or bringing out the dead with Mm -hmm. another screenplay where like light sleeper it's about this existentially adrift guy who you know bounces around new york city at night you know coming Mm. up on a bunch of eccentric characters but at the same time if you hear him talk about it he's also acutely aware of trying to change things up like after mishima he made a michael j fox uh joan jett blue collar drama called light of day which i really enjoyed but he approached it in a way where he went all right i'm not going to do crazy visuals like i did in mishima but like this artist who many people put in the box of like oh he does this one thing does do them in subtle or very obviously different ways like patty hearth which is often considered a failure as well um kind of financially and critically is this insane film where schrader decided to put the audience in the position of patty hearst so for the first 30 minutes you don't even get an introduction to her she gets kidnapped right away and then it's this kind of insane assault on the audience where you're trapped with her in a closet and everybody talking to her are just shadows that are illuminated by the door that like rips open and just like white behind her. And that's a really interesting way to approach the character but at the same time it's not an audience pleasing way (laughs) and he says about Patty Hearst like if I could have found an audience pleasing way to do it I would (laughs) have but this is the best way I could illustrate this point (laughs) and like his career when you look at it is ups and downs but you know one of the undisputed ups of his career was Mm. Affliction in 1997, which that and I think Autofocus, um, while, you know, they were only sort of critical successes, they kind of brought him back into a certain zeitgeist, Mm -hmm. you know. And when you look at something like Affliction and like the Dower cover and that it's based on a Russell Banks novel, all you can think of is, oh man, it's going to be a chore, won't it? And we'd be lying if we said it wasn't 
a difficult film. I really liked it. Oh, I really liked it too. I was found it very powerful. I gotta say. And it's the story of Nick Nolte who plays this kind of washed up police officer whose life is crumbling around him. His father played by James Coburn is getting over the loss of his mother. And at the same time, a murder happened that Nick Nolte is kind of trying to solve. Or is it a murder? It's just kind of destroying him essentially. Mm. And this movie just tracks his journey throughout this. Nick Nolte's marriage has also fallen apart and his Mm. relationship with his young daughter is on the rocks and he's starting a new relationship with Sissy Spacek. But Mm. uh, unfortunately, the cloud of his abusive father, James Coburn, hangs over his life. And something that Schrader said in the Schrader on Schrader book that I really liked, Nolte has a brother in the movie played by Willem Dafoe, who's kind of, even though it's told from Willem Dafoe's perspective, he's kind of a non-factor in the story. It's always Coburn and Nolte who are fighting. And as Schrader says, in the context of this family, that's love in a sick way. Mm -hmm. Coburn doesn't regard Willem Dafoe as a worthy adversary. Mm -hmm. He regards Nolte as a worthy adversary. So he's the one who bears the brunt of all his hate. And that's the way the film builds as well to this climactic moment between these two. Because we'd be lying if we said anything other than the film is the slow deterioration of an individual. And there's nobody better to deteriorate than Nick Nolte. Who Schrader said that he picked because... Uh, Nolte had an affable quality. An audience-pleasing persona. Which is kind of bananas when you consider Nick Nolte like today. Well, this was another era in Nick Nolte's <laughs> career. But but also, like, when he said that, of course that quote pops out and seems ridiculous. But, you know, there is something to Nick Nolte. He is simultaneously very tough and gruff, but he's also has a vulnerability to him. You want to see him succeed. Yeah, like there's there's something about him that always seems very hurt and always seems on the verge of falling apart. And Trader always talks about that he wants to end his films in a moment of grace. That's something that he takes mm-hmm. from uh, Robert Brasson. And I think that The Affliction is one of the perfect Trader versions of that. Like he ripped off Brasson a lot mm-hmm. doing the same ending in American Gigolo mm-hmm. and Light Sleeper. But in The Affliction, he just get like the final moments of this film Film will stick in your memory forever when you see them. You know, I love a movie about a dysfunctional family. I, lo- I love a movie about how, you know, one generation's flaws, or, you know, in this case, the cycle of violence, how it gets passed on from generation to generation, and the idea of how do you stop this cycle of abuse? And how how do you stop the cycle? Of I mean, abuse? Schrader gives you no answers other than self destruction. In a way, he does give you an answer. Yeah, like, it's just not the one that you want. Yeah, it, you, you cannot continue with your life from that point forward. Yeah. So he also made autofocus around this period, and this is the Greg Kinnear. I don't know why the DVD was everywhere, but I remember at the time of its release, I would say like, what is this autofocus thing? Because Sony Pictures Classics uh, had a lot of money behind it at the time. (laughs) And it's the story of Bob Crane, the star of Hogan's Heroes, Hogan, (laughs) who was this affable, smiling, charming guy who just loves sex. Mm -hmm. That's the movie. Yeah, and he had a good friend and partner in his escapades named John Carpenter, not Mm -hmm. to be confused with the filmmaker or the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire winner. And John Carpenter is played by Willem Dafoe. Ah, just the go-to Paul Schrader guy. And and Willem Dafoe may or may not be gay, Mm -hmm. you know, probably. Bisexual. Yeah, bisexual. And it's this kind of, again, destruction of an individual. And the film itself tracks this destruction visually because Bob Crane has this perfect American life and 
the beginning is shot like a colorful lockdown kind of sitcom and as it goes along the camera gets more wobbly the film grain stock changes <laughs> and you get into this like decrepit world that Bob Crane ends up with because he just can't stop having sex and you know most of Schrader's you know, isolated antisocial heroes know there's something wrong. They may not know how to fix it, but they know there's something wrong. Bob Crane is different. He's a complete blank. And Schrader said when the movie was coming out that this is what interested him, that Bob Crane didn't know anything was bad and he thought life was just good and anything that was terrible that happened to him well it was just the bad luck of the draw Mm -hmm. and that was the issue that I had with the movie is that as I was watching it I'm like I don't care about this person and this is a problem that Trader said he struggled to make it interesting even though the centerpiece is not I like the movie a lot Mm -hmm. I find Bob Crane interesting in his sheer lack of interest uh I'm not quite sure why. I might I mean this there may be a bit of a difference between you and me here where where I like sleaze for sleaze sake mm-hmm. more than this you do. This is a sleazy movie too. <laughs> yeah. And and I think I'm I find sleaze more intrinsically interesting than you. Mm-hmm. But also I am very interested in the way that Bob Crane or anyone can t- so totally compartmentalize their life. Yeah. You know, I I think everyone is you know, if there's something that I can identify with in the film, it's that. It's, mm. the, it's the idea that you can be one thing in one sphere and then be completely the opposite in another sphere. But unlike Bob Crane, you are riddled with guilt trying to separate those two spheres. Oh, yeah. I'm much more like Travis Bickle than, <laughs> yeah. uh, than Bob Crane. <laughs> and Autofocus was a film that, you know, Paul Schrader said he was very proud of it, but it didn't do that well financially. Oh, the other thing I like about Autofocus is that it's really funny. Uh, yeah, it's amusing. Yeah. I think that it's... <laughs> It thinks that it's funnier than it actually is because what's funny about it is that kind of like, oh, this guy's like, ah, shucks, what are we going to do? While he and William Dafoe are like masturbating and talking about women. How about that scene where they're both watching a video of their orgy that they're having together and Bob Crane pauses like, what, what, what's that on my ass? Is oh, that, it, is that what, your hand? It, it, and uh, William Dafoe's like, what? It's it's an orgy. It's, yeah. a, it's a group grope. Yeah, what's that, the problem? That's funny. That's yeah. funny. It's just that like, it's a movie that takes you to a place that when the film starts and you know what it's about, you know where it's going. Yeah, yeah. And then it just ends up there. After Autofocus, though, um, uh, Paul Schrader struggles a little bit. Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist, is not good. It's Schrader dealing with material that, while he has an intellectual affinity for, like he says The Exorcist is one of the best horror films of all time, like most people coming up in that era would say, he doesn't know how to illustrate it in an interesting and compelling way. Well, thank God they got Rennie Harlan on the case. Yeah, he added a few action scenes to spice it up. As I said in my dual reviews when I watched them uh, both together, I'd rather something dumb and exciting than something just dumb and boring. Wow, so, yep. you, so you prefer the Rennie Harlan version? I, I mean, I think it was one and a half star versus two stars, so like... <laughs> The consistency of the stool that I'm putting out. All right, fair enough. But the canyons, that's when he kind of lifted himself back up, right? And You know, I think the thing about First Reformed is it makes the last decade of his career click into focus. Mm. Because until I saw First Reformed, Paul Schrader looked a little sad. Yeah, he was on the Dario Argento track where he keeps making movies and you look at them and go, does this person even understand like how to make movies anymore? Because Doggy Dog is a hilarious mess. Like, I I looked online, I think I gave it one and a half star. Well, I'm not going to make any claims for it. I may give it either a soft three or a a hard two and a half. And uh, you know what? If I watch it again, I would probably be easier on it. And hearing him talk about it, the fact that he wanted to kind of parody that 
super stylized crime film that was coming out does, like you said, put it more into focus, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't work as a movie. But also the idea that, you know, Schrader is not employable by studios anymore. No. And, you know, the sorts of movies he wants to make you know, even a movie like Cat People or, you know, fucking Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist mm-hmm. isn't going to get released by a studio anymore. So he's somebody who's trying to figure out, OK, you know, where is the money? Where can I where can I adapt myself to? And the fact that it leads to First Reformed makes the search seem fruitful. When you look at Doggy Dog, you also have to consider that that is a reaction to the other Nicolas Cage film he made, Dying of the Light, mm-hmm. because that was a production that he tried to play by the rules and he got fucked on. Mm-hmm. So when he made Doggy Dog, it was like he was just throwing everything in the air and goes, I'm just going to do everything. Or, you know, the canyons, you can either see it as this dead end, this mm-hmm. sort of sad attempt of an old guy to to make a youth film on a micro budget and try, trying to stay relevant. Or you can see it as, you know, him experimenting with a different kind of filmmaking and a different kind of shooting schedule that would eventually lead to First Reformed. And you could also say that it is a continuation of the themes that he would revisit mm-hmm. over and over again. Like, if American Gigolo is his 80s Lonely Man film, and Light Sleeper is his 90s one, and The Walker is his 2000s, then The Canyon is a reflection of the post-2010s world, which is hollow, it's ugly looking, Mm -hmm. and it stars porn stars and washed up teen stars. And everyone's on their phone. Exactly. And, and, like the LA in the film is so barren. Everyone is so disconnected. And if people don't know what the Canyons is, and we've been talking about it for a while. I think they know what the Canyons is, but go ahead. It's the movie that Paul Schrader did a Kickstarter for. Like it was a big deal that like a director with some renown was going to crowdfunding to make this film. And not just Paul Schrader, uh, writer Brad Easton Ellis. Who, I, I don't know if we've talked about him on the podcast before, but I don't think we're very big fans of him. I've never read any of his books. Oh, that's right. We did an American Psycho episode on yeah, him where yeah. we kind of tore into him and I think the biggest problem with the film is Brett Easton Ellis Mm -hmm. which is that he's a man who has no awareness of what he's doing so Paul Schrader ends up making a film that is just kind of pale imitations of what he's done before well some of the dialogue in the movie is terrible like that scene where James Dean is in a psychiatrist's office with Gus Van Sant and he's talking about the four-way sex they had the night before and he's saying like I I felt objectified Mm -hmm. I felt I wasn't in control (laughs) I'm used to directing the scene it's so on the nose or that early scene where he says babe nobody has a, a personal life anymore in her last starring role i have to say uh, like probably i mean i haven't kept that close <laughs> there's an amazing uh new yorker article or new york times article yeah called this is what happens when you cast Lindsay lohan to star in your movie which is an amazing picture of paul schrader struggling to make this movie yeah and I, you know nick pinkerton wrote a review for reverse shot where he tried to make the case that all of the hype for the movie, whether it's the Kickstarter or that article or, you know, uh, Schrader and Brady Snellis on social media, it's all like an extension of the text. I guess, but like the film... It doesn't make the movie better, but it... it yeah, yeah, the film dramatically doesn't work. Yeah. And like, like I said before, unless you hold it in order of the other films that he's made before and it being an extension of those films, like it's not enjoyable. I definitely see a, a Bresson influence on mm-hmm. the Canyons, weirdly enough. Yeah, I do too. And... It is that kind of hollow, like, why should we care story about these lame people in L.A. It's a very distinctive film. Mm -hmm. The L.A. that it evokes is very distinctive. And 
it's un- very unpleasant. But and, I've also seen it three times, so there's something in this movie that's bringing me back. And I know that we keep talking about First Reformed, but it is a movie that brings everything else into focus. <laughs> because if you would utilize the Canyons as a continuation of his career, you would say, oh man, Paul Schrader's starting to lose it. Like, he doesn't understand anymore what makes a compelling film. <laughs> and then stuff like Dying of the Light and doggy dog would lead you to believe oh yeah that's happening he's to flailing him. yeah like dracula 3d is gonna come out <laughs> soon but then first reform comes out and we talked about it a little bit when it played at tiff and we both saw it yeah uh, it's gonna be in my top 10 of the year yeah, i it's... think because it's it's everything that schrader has talked about and kind of hinted at at his films just illustrated in one 90 minute picture and it's also you know, he doesn't have to work within a genre that mm-hmm. he doesn't particularly like it feels like just a straight shot of schrader yeah exactly and i believe it just came out in theaters yeah like i didn't hear anything about it oh really well i mean at tiff it uh mm-hmm. it was a major and success. critically it was very well received but it shows that like Schrader still has it, but he was just flailing to try to find a way to be relevant. There's an article in Cinemascope this month where Alex Ross Perry interviews him and, and Perry says something along along the lines of First Reformed feels like a young man's film, which may sound like a counterintuitive thing to say about this rather slow, uh, methodically paced film. Mm. But it's like an old man's young man's film. Where mm. It's like, this is my last chance to make a movie. It's a like last this. man's film. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what it is. Yeah. It's a guy that's going, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm going to do the thing that yeah. I want to do. It's even in the Academy four by three ratio. <laughs> and like, it's funny. It's dramatically compelling. It's visually like intoxicating. Mm-hmm. And Trader even says like, I just stole everything from my favorite pictures, but he just makes it his own. It does have a very similar plot to Winter Light. It, exa- yeah. And he yeah. says that himself. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Like, if you're going to steal f- from something, steal from the stuff that you love, not the stuff that you think will make your picture successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to end with uh, <laughs> Schrader recently posted a Facebook status. Are you friends with him still? I, I'm not. I follow him on oh, Facebook. Yeah. I'm not his friend. <laughs> but uh, he posted about... It was the week that Michael Cimino and Kira Stami died in the same week. Mm-hmm. And he said something along the lines of, let me get this straight. We're supposed to be so upset that two very accomplished films filmmakers in their 80s died <laughs> yep. give me a break and then somebody commented underneath well i guess i'll be sure not to mourn you then and then schrader commented under that there's no need to <laughs> uh, from a man who has accepted the fact that his obituary will start with the writer of taxi driver mm-hmm. and he's like there's no way around that mm-hmm. yep uh, go watch some paul schrader films don't be scared of them <laughs> we had a good time this week watching, watching yeah. these movies probably one of the one of the better weeks yeah us, that i know? remember that oh wow these are genuine discoveries that I wish I'd seen before now. And, and also, like, I definitely had some gaps in my Schrader knowledge, and, mm-hmm. and this is one of those weeks where I feel like I came to better appreciate the filmmaker. Did you check out his Skeet Ulrich epic, Touch? No, I missed it. I'm so, <laughs> I Later, when we do a Patreon, you know, Schrader revisit When he passes away, I, yeah. like, I assume Schrader will, like, grumpily live to, like, 101. Yeah, out of spite. <laughs> yeah. He'll be the Jean de Godard to that, like, Hollywood new wave. <laughs> So, do we have any letters this week? As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Eddie Averill, and it goes, Music Docs. 
Hey, Justin and Will. I was wondering if you had any favorite documentaries about musicians. More specifically, I wanted to know if you've seen Hated, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies, directed by Todd Phillips of the Hangover Trilogy. Truly one of the most disgusting films I've seen. I actually haven't seen it, but I've been Whoa, that's to. crazy. Yeah. I, I, that's one that I would have assumed that you would have seen. Yeah, I'm very, I very much want to see it. Uh, this will put it back at the top of my list. Uh, I have seen the one of the documentaries that Todd Phillips produced at that time called Screwed about Al Goldstein. Mm-hmm. I, I recommend it if you can find it uh and as far as music docs go i don't know if it's like well i like the ones that everyone likes mm-hmm. like you know don't look back yeah. or give me shelter all the know. martin scorsese produced one you big rolling stones fan the uh one that he made not particularly no. although i do like the, the rolling stones i think are interesting because so many great filmmakers have made films about them jean luc godard jean luc godard has made one robert frank made mm-hmm. cocksucker blues uh, uh a gimme shelter the most famous probably music doc I ever probably forgetting uh one or two you know i watched uh, a documentary pretty recently about uh, Bob Dylan at the Newport Music Festival. I can't remember what it was called, but it was the same director who did Monterey Pop. Oh, the one about him going electric? Yeah, and you see him at three different Newport Music Festivals, and you see how his fame grows from festival to festival, and how the audience by the third one is getting a little suspicious of him. Mm. And it's not a particularly great documentary, it's not very flashy, but it's just an interesting record of these events. Like, I didn't realize a record existed yeah. of that famous moment of him going electric and people booing him. And I'm always more interested in like the music doc in the sense that like it tracks the evolution of one person's career or one person in that moment. Like there's a Canadian short film that's like one of the most famous ones called Lonely Boy oh, yeah. about Paul Anka and the kind of like world he was living in when he was at the height of his popularity. Mm. And that there's something interesting there, I oh, think. Also, maybe the last one, you mentioned John luc Godard's Rolling Stones film, mm. uh, Sympathy for the Devil. That movie is really interesting because it actually captures the creation of the song Sympathy for the Devil mm-hmm. from be- from the beginning when it's kind of a much more quiet, mellow version of the song. When And then they start bringing in like, I don't know what you call it, describe this, like, like Samba style almost mm-hmm. as it goes on and on and on. I mean, there's that like Metallica doc, Some Kind of Monster as well, which is all about like them acting like assholes mm-hmm. and it just captures them in this moment where they're not at the height of their fame mm-hmm. but they're so famous that they can still be like jerks and you just see them like not understand what's going on oh and that reminds me anvil is good oh and- anvil is so yeah. good yeah about the two kind of um i would even say famous because they're working in supermarkets well they were canadian rockers mm-hmm. who toured with kiss maybe yeah and all those people yeah and but they never quite made it and then yeah 20 years later they're working at supermarkets in toronto and they get a chance at a european tour and it's very very kind of spinal tap ish except it's actually real yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i remember when i was a teenager i was enamored with this documentary i believe it was called dig and it was like a dual document of the dandy warhols and the brian jonestown mm-hmm. massacre and just following them through their tour and how these two groups one of them who just essentially sells out to make poppy music and the other one who fights that the entire time mm-hmm. how they end up at the end of their not careers but yeah pretty much yeah. <laughs> so hopefully there's some suggestions there um we're not experts on that kind of subgenre by any stretch of the imagination uh eddie goes keep up the good work the detour commentary was great thanks eddie uh and he says he's from Rosada, California, home of Boogie Nights. Nice. All righty. So uh, our next letter is from Dan Bach. He goes, hello, second time letter writer and longtime fan. I was just writing to comment on something that I believe Will said in the Todd Haynes episode about being able to relate to the film Poison more if he was part of the LGBTQ community. 
Being in it myself, I was easily able to connect within the film with its fear of the AIDS virus and the feeling of being an outcast that can come from contracting it. And even though the film isn't only about the AIDS virus itself, but also about just being gay in general. I know it's pretty obvious, but that's all my high school film analysis abilities can achieve at this point. <laughs> with this in mind, I wanted to ask if there were any other films you guys felt you weren't able to connect to because of your background. Thanks for the great podcast. Hope you guys can go on forever like the Simpsons, but don't get racist like they did. <laughs> uh, thanks for the letter, uh, Dan Bach. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of films that are a little hard for us to connect to, which doesn't mean you shouldn't try mm-hmm. and, and you shouldn't be open to those to those films. Yeah, like superhero movies with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember in university, I took a cinema and authorship class, and one of the filmmakers that we studied was the African filmmaker Usman Semben, mm-hmm. who made some films that I I think connect the two very much like Black Girl is one of his most famous ones there were certain other films that felt very steeped in African culture and particularly politics at the time mm-hmm. where I sort of felt like I would have needed um, I, I could have better appreciated them had I some sort of like Cliff's Notes guide <laughs> explaining what all these references were to well we tend to watch movies from around the world and we kind of gravitate toward the more obvious big genre outings when there's like tons of movies that just wouldn't have the same impact on us whether it be like Quebecois comedies for you like it would mean nothing to you Hong Kong comedies are a little bit like that too like they're so colloquial like uh, Elvis Graton which is a film series Mm -hmm. uh, that came out of Quebec is about this character who just like swears and like just represents Quebecois at its most kind of working class (laughs) and even me I'm like while I did live in that environment, like, this doesn't reflect me, so I don't like it. While I understand people like my stepbrother, he loved that shit. But you understand I do that. understand that, yeah. Whereas I feel like with certain of the Usman Samben films, it's simply outside of my frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Like, it could also be, like, Japanese dramas as well. Mm. Like, we tend to gravitate towards ones that we can't understand. But, like, modern day stuff that comes out now, or even, like, more kind of TV-orientated stuff, like, doesn't have the same impact on us and it would on other people that are steeped in that kind of culture that said i don't think i think everyone has these sorts of blind spots and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a retreat yes like one should interrogate those blind spots and try to learn more and try to engage with uh, the art and just be a better person you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean just watch it and be aware of that instead of yeah. just kind of dismissing it out of hand and being like well that's not for me yeah like we did with todd haynes where we're like we get it but it just doesn't emotionally move us. Yeah, although, which is a little weird, though, because, I mean, I was thinking about it. You know, Todd Haynes, there there are certain LGBTQ filmmakers who move me very much and mm-hmm. who I have a much easier time connecting with than him. He's a, a real crossover mm-hmm. filmmaker, you know, much more than certain ones that I like. Like, what are some other ones? That I mean, of... I, you know, I frankly, I gravitate more towards Bruce LaBruce than I do ah, Todd Canadian Haynes. auteur. Uh, and Bruce LaBruce is, you know, a much... I think a much more difficult filmmaker. Uh, So this week on our Patreon episode, we talked about Steven Soderbergh again because he just released a film a month ago called Unsane. He shot it on an iPhone. What did this mean for the career of a man who said that he was going to retire? Uh, We were also supposed to talk about Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, but... I'm not going to force Will to go see it. Yeah, I may still see it at some point. <laughs> you sent me like a sad message saying, I guess I'll go see it after work tonight. And I was like, Will, no, you don't have to do it. Don't do this to yourself. I thought you'd see it with other people alone. Don't do it. You're a good man. <laughs> Actually, I found a friend who might see it with me. So. <laughs> oh, really? So you'll get so, that yes. ironic watching? Stay tuned. <laughs> I would like to say again that you can become a Patreon uh, member 
by going to patreon.com slash important cinema club. It's $5 a month. You get a new episode every week. And I just want to thank people that have uh, recently become Patreon subscribers, which include Stephen Rice, Juha uh, Matula, Emil Dirks, Emmett Crudus, William Chow, Michael Strabenjanin, Philippe Torres, oh. Liam Rennie, Zach H., and Xiaosi. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. And shame on you, Justin, for some of those mispronunciations. Uh, uh, come on. Like, this <laughs> word, his last name is S-B-R-G-A-N-I-N. <laughs> oh, well, listen, listen, Michael, I'm glad you're a subscriber. Uh, so wait, how do you say his last name, Will? Uh, anyway, that's it for this week. <laughs> Next week, we'll be back. Wait, no, I just want to thank people because I am jobless. This money means a lot to me. So <laughs> Next week... We're going to be talking about uh, something that's very important to both of us. <laughs> uh, spoof movies. Uh, do they go under other terms like, you know, laugh em ups or... I mean, it's maybe a trickier genre to define because some spoof movies are spoofs of one or two particular movies. Mm. You know, a film like a Fatal Instinct by yeah. Carl Reiner is a spoof of Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. Other spoof films like, say, Blazing Saddles are, yeah. are much more of a uh, pastiche. Do we want to talk about Mel Brooks? on this nah, episode. No, we're not going to touch him. He should be his own episode. But we will be talking about Zaz, the Zucker Brothers, and Jim Abrahams, and we'll be watching Top Secret. And listen, we gotta do one of those movie movies. So. Airplane. And yeah, we'll talk about Airplane as well. Airplane is the definitive one. Airplane, I know. yeah. But you know, Top Secret is the funnier one. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> but we also have to watch Date Night or something like that. Let's watch Epic Movie. And we'll do it together. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, so and, that way it'll be uh, palatable. And should we also look at, uh, I know you're fan of Jane Austen's Mafia. I am. That's a Jim Abraham's joint, which is he directed all those other movies. So yeah, we we could definitely uh, (laughs) discuss that film. And I believe you did a Michael and Us episode. I did one on American Carol. (laughs) So you already covered the late period career of David Zucker. (laughs) But that's what we're going to talk about next week. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. It's time for Justin's Canadian Cinema Update. If you're not a Canadian listener, you might not have known that this week was Canadian Film Day. (laughs) I mean, you're probably a Canadian listener and you didn't know as well, but... But it's a real thing here. You know, movie theaters across the country (laughs) will have free screenings of Canadian films that day. Q, uh, Ginger Snap. The Sweet Hereafter. I mean, how else are you going to get people to see Canadian movies unless you do it for free? (laughs) That's true. And then you devalue it, so nobody wants to go anyway. Uh, So I didn't go this year. Uh, I have gone in past years to see a Canadian film. Really? What, what have you seen in the past? Uh, I saw Nobody Waved Goodbye on 16mm film. Wow. Yeah, that was uh, a good experience. I remember a few years ago they showed Going Down the Road and mm. the director was in attendance, nice. which is crazy. And it happened like on the outskirts of Toronto where nobody probably went and saw it. Would you believe that I've never seen Going Down the Road? Uh, yes, I would believe Patreon that. episode at Yeah, sure, Patreon yeah, episode. Uh, I spent some time watching some Canadian movies uh, that day while I was finishing up a presentation that I did at a library on Canadian cinema. And I saw, just went to the canonical, like, people talk about these movies as important. I watched Drylanders, which is... 
I just laughed and laughed and laughed watching it. It was the first film that the NFB made as a feature-length dramatic kind of narrative film, mm. still using the techniques that they use in like Candid Eye and stuff like that, capturing the um, journey that Canadians had in Saskatchewan when they went and they tried to farm the land. And it's just 70 plus minutes of misery just seeing <laughs> these Canadian people like grow old and fail, people die, children become homeless because they have to live in the city and it's just like this is what you thought people wanted to see sounds good it's an illustration of that kind of idea that like in 30s melodrama the idea of watching someone just fail is inherently dramatic these are the kinds of great movies we get you know when we have a socialized film industry (laughs) where where, where the government invests in it and you know wants to wants to show the real Canada Mm -hmm. well this week I went to the Royal to see Jean Colette Serra's Orphan to have a laugh, I'm sure. No, I I respect Jean Colette Serra okay. as as an artist, as mm, an auteur. Many, you're getting on my level now. Many smart critics have made the case, you know. Yeah, but they call him vulgar tourist, which is kind of saying like he's beneath us. Uh, I mean, I'm like so many uh, people who came late to the Jean Colette Serra train. I think yeah. I think you know a lot of us back when House of Wax and this movie were coming out were a little too snobby to go mm. see them. But yeah, now we can bring ourselves down to to your level, <laughs> yeah, Justin. That's right. or, House of Wax, lots of fun. I've never seen it. More of a remake of David Schmoller's Tourist Trap than it is House of Wax. Well, I love David Schmoller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the man who gave us Crawl Space and... Uh, that's the only one of his movies I know. Puppet Master. You made Puppet oh, Master okay. as well. I yeah, that's that. right. Yeah. And so how was your experience at the screening? I believe it's the No Future uh, yeah. series that happened at the Royal Cinema. Yeah, Angelo Moreta curates it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I thought it was super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was just unbelievably, you know cruel and upsetting you know the whole second half of the movie is just this orphan torturing her mother in increasingly sadistic ways that do you remember the scene with the flowers no i don't okay well i'm not gonna spoil it yeah okay the scene with the flowers is just ripped me apart it was it was so sad (laughs) now is a movie like this like why do people feel they have to like label it like vulgar tourism like can't they just enjoy orphan like as a movie that's Good. Well, vulgar tourism was a critical movement that I think was crank. I think was, was part of doomed it. from the start mm-hmm. because, as many pointed out, tourism was vulgar tourism. Yeah, like, exactly. Like in Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, yeah, all that stuff. Or in Andrew Sarris's book, he had that whole section on uh, expressive esoterica. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah, Edgar G. Ulmer. Mm-hmm. That that's vulgar tourism. No, I think it was just a way for for people. Um, for, for certain critics to uh, get some excitement around the idea, just around the idea, like to be provocative and say, mm. oh yeah, Paul W.S. Anderson is an auteur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that's that's what they were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Do you like Paul W.S. Anderson? Uh, I think he makes movies that I want to like and I find very dull. Okay. We, we, I've kind of pitched doing a Paul W.S. Anderson I w- film. I think I would do it. Yeah. But you haven't seen enough of his films. I, I could I could possibly do a Paul W. I'm interested in him. I think what's fascinating about him is that like he obviously loves all this stuff, but doesn't understand how to kind of do it in a way that like gets the audience's blood pumping. And that's specifically illustrated by Resident Evil, which is a boring slog, and Resident Evil 2, which he wrote, but was directed Mm. by somebody else. Resident Evil 2, Apocalypse, is one of the most fun, dumb, cheap Hollywood Mm. blockbusters that has come out in the last, like, few decades. Mm. 
Resident Evil 1 is, holy shit, like, why, what do you like about this stuff? I don't understand. And I've had to make a promise to myself, I will never watch it again. <laughs> because, like, I, it's bad, and no one will convince me of that. Well, anyway, uh, with Orphan, I, I looked up the reviews that it got, mm-hmm. uh, and when it came out, it was 42% on Metacritic, which is crazy. And, it like, is it really that much different than, like, we need to talk about Kevin or Killing of a Sacred Deer? I it's- guess it just comes down to the way that it's advertised way right and the way that it's presented and like you know there's this question always in my mind when you talk about movies and you know roger ebert said this which is like you have to evaluate the movie for like what it wants to be well roger ebert to his credit gave orphan three and a half stars out four he was by a significant margin the most enthusiastic wow that's crazy for it at the time but yeah a lot of the reviews of it seem to find it distasteful Mm -hmm. and and yeah just sort of an ugly and ridiculous film Probably because it's a film, you know, for the masses, mm-hmm. unlike Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is which is for us, the smart people. And, like, this idea of morals is something that I'm always fascinated by when I, like, read reviews, which is like, oh, I find this morally repugnant, and because of that, I can't enjoy it. We've talked about this a little bit through Wolf Warrior 2 and stuff like that, and... The reviews have started to come out for the new Puppet Master movies, The Littlest Reich, which uh, I'm a big Puppet Master fan. I just like the idea of them, even if uh, I would say three quarters of the film don't deliver in any way, shape, or form. But guess what? what about, I own them on Blu-ray. What about a retro Puppet Master? <laughs> uh, the one that stars... Um, Greg Sestero. From The Room and was directed by our main man, David Dakota. <laughs> well, I own it on Blu-ray because it has commentary with both of them. Oh, you know what? I should have mentioned uh, The Canyons feels like a David Dakota film. You know what? It does feel like a David Dakota <laughs> film. That's 100%. If David Dakota gave himself like two extra days to make it yeah uh but like the little strike review started to come out and it's like you know this film is not for anybody who's pc because these puppets are they're killing like black people and jewish people and gay people because they're actually nazis and i suddenly had like a moment where i was taken aback and i went huh i don't know if this is for me then yeah and like there's this question of if like teenage me heard me say that he'd, he'd go like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why is this an issue? And it's this, I don't know if it's like the kind of political time we're in now where like those lines are so defined. If I see someone on Twitter or review go like, oh yeah, people that are, that are politically correct aren't going to enjoy this. I assume like the next line will be like, got to close those borders to keep the immigrants from getting in. Well, this puppet master film, like, it sounds kind of disingenuous. It sounds like, oh, well, they're taking advantage of, mm. um, you know, something. And it's not like the filmmakers are are working through something that, that they care about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And it is directed by two guys. I don't recall their names. They made movies in uh, other languages that I really enjoy, including one called Wither, which was like a remake of the Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. But it's like grungy and kind of like the Evil Dead remake. And like, I can enjoy that on that level. But when then they just like push it to the next, that's when it makes me, I don't want to say uncomfortable because I'm not uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I don't know. Like there are lots of uh, maybe morally compromised filmmakers who have made more morally compromised films that are interesting um i don't i haven't seen the new roseanne but Mm -hmm. frankly it sounds more interesting to me than this puppet master movie does simply because it seems to be coming from a more honest place and but like s craig zoller actually wrote the new puppet master film the guy who directed bone tomahawk and brawl on Subblock 99 and i love those movies well that gets me interested actually because he i i think he's probably some sort of a fascist but i'm (laughs) i mean i gotta bring this up do we cut something like wolf warrior 2 more slack 
because we're like, hey, guys, we made Puppet Master. You should know better. Well, Wolf Warrior 2, you guys are okay. Is that like a weird racist thing? That well, we're doing? I definitely didn't cut Operation Red Sea slack no, when yeah. I saw it. But that's again like Chinese, right? Yeah. So we go like, oh, we're going to like put you in a different box. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Life is complex, isn't it? Like, you know what? But I uh, like uh, morally compromised and difficult mm-hmm. uh, artworks. But I do too. I like problematic artworks. But it's just like that. It's it's just this specific thing. It makes yeah. you go, hmm. And it's probably like nostalgia. Maybe I'm having a like the uh, last Jedi style. Like, you can't do that to Luke Skywalker because the puppets in the movies aren't Nazis. They're actually anti-Nazi. But I'm also a little bit tired of all this hand-wringing these days. Yeah, about, the, me too. About, about like, oh, well, you know, with Trump in office, we can't watch the new Roseanne. Because I absolutely that's, agree yeah, with you, yeah. which is weird because like, you're not going to watch it, but yeah. you don't want people saying like, don't watch it because of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, because now it's it's liberals too often who are advocating for this kind <laughs> of, the, you know. Well, the, Trey Parker just came on the podcast. <laughs> no, but, but if he said it, he would be right. Like, yeah, it's yeah. liberals who are advocating for this kind of like wholesome, mm. you know, non-degenerate art now. And that's and that's uh, scary and upsetting to me. It is. And you know what? I will pay my money and I will see this new Puppet Master film. Yeah. There's no doubt about yeah. that. 